church. Uh, today our reading is from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the good shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. In the same way, you, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. The word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. How you doing this morning? Good. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I got to tell you, this remodel has not been healthy for me. <laughs> Maybe not for the reasons that you think, though. Uh, primarily, it's because we serve donuts to the construction crew every week. <laughs> They're working hard, and we just want to treat them to a little something. So every week, we provide donuts for the crew, uh, which means there are donuts in the building every week. And I have to walk by them, and I'm not normally a sweets person, but something's been going on with me lately where I just keep returning to sweets, and particularly to those donuts. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's like the, you know, you got the sprinkles on the, you know, glazed donuts, or you've got like the cake donuts. I like a blueberry cake donut with the glaze on top, just a little extra sugar on there. My favorite, though, is a buttermilk bar. Right? Yes, anybody else? Buttermilk bar. If I see one of those sitting in the box on the table out in the lobby there, I'll usually, I'll walk by it once and I'll see it and I'll use a little willpower and then a little bit later I'll be walking by and check and see if it's still there, it's still around, okay. Usually by the third time I'm picking up that buttermilk bar and I'm going to eat it. And I don't know why I've been doing that so much lately. Actually, I do know why. It's the sugar. That's the reason why I keep going back for the donuts. The sugar is just something I keep returning to, and it's something that it does something to my body. It actually gives me a little bit of a dopamine hit. It makes me feel pretty good in the moment. It tastes really nice. Uh, it's enjoyable, right? But at the same time, it doesn't really fully satisfy. Uh, in fact, for me, it almost always makes my stomach hurt in some way. And then inevitably, there's like the afternoon sugar crash where everything just kind of goes downhill. I need healthier things <laughs> besides donuts. Uh, carrots and broccoli tray. Nah, we'll still go with the donuts. Sugar is like pride. It's something that I keep getting back to. It's something that makes me feel good in the moment. 
It actually does something to me bodily. It gives me a little bit of a dopamine hit, makes me feel nice, gives me the energy that I need maybe to accomplish something. But it never really fully satisfies. And much like sugar, inevitably, it's gonna end up leading to a crash. I need something healthier in my life than pride. I need humility. Humility wins the day. Which is kind of a weird phrase because wins the day is a phrase that's used in a lot of different ways. And in almost all ways that I've seen it, it's consistently used for prideful things. But it's gonna be humility that wins the day. Today's our last Sunday in our series uh, through First Peter called Strangers in a Strange Land. Um, we've been studying what Peter has said to these collection of churches in Asia Minor uh, from people who likely were exiles from Rome. They were living in Rome and then forced to colonize these different areas in Asia Minor. And they're not having an easy go of it there. Uh, not only are they in a strange land for them, they're not in their home area, but as followers of Jesus, they're actually facing a lot of trouble as well. They're being ostracized in their communities. Um, their livelihoods are being threatened. They're actually enduring some physical persecution as well. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them that in the midst of all that trouble, to stay faithful to God, to make sure they know they are chosen by God and that even though they're going through really difficult things, that God has an imperishable inheritance waiting for them. There are good things coming. So for now, they just need to live a life that is distinct for the kingdom of God, distinct for a follower of Jesus. Because they're not a part of the kingdoms of this world, they're a part of the kingdom of God. They are strangers in a strange land. Now in these six weeks, we haven't been able to cover everything that's in this letter, so I hope that maybe you took up my challenge to you in the very first week of this series to read through 1 Peter several times through over the weeks so that you could be formed and shaped by the things that Peter had to say. This is the word of God, and it shapes us, it forms us as we read it, and it teaches us who God is and who we are in light of who God is and how we can live in God's kingdom. And that's really important because you and I are strangers in a strange land as well. We're not a part of the kingdoms of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. Now, we don't face the same kind of circumstances as other followers of Jesus do around the world. And so throughout this series, we have been praying for the persecuted church, our brothers and sisters who suffer for the faith all around the world uh, with mostly the top five most persecuted areas. And today we're gonna do that as well. And as Jess said, we're gonna cap that off next Sunday evening with our prayer for the persecuted church, our, our night of uh, prayer and worship for the persecuted church. So I'd really encourage you to be here for that next Sunday evening and don't be late. <laughs> All right, let's get started here. If you've got a Bible or if you've got a device, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1 here. 
And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when, it's, when he is revealed to the whole world. As an elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. Peter's been writing to everybody in all of these churches this whole time, and then now as he gets close to the end of the letter, he kind of hones it in and talks directly to the elders, to the leaders in the church. And he's giving them some instruction, which is really important because they've been given an important responsibility. They are caretakers over all of the people in the church. And you can imagine the scenario here where they're under a lot of pressure. The church is facing difficulty. All the people who are in their care are facing difficulty. And so it's important for Peter to tell them, how do you lead well in the church in difficult circumstances? Because when the pressure is on, there's a temptation for leadership to try and take more control of what's happening and maybe force things through. I'll be honest with you, in the last few years, just kind of dealing with COVID and extra political tension in our society, trying to navigate all of that as a church has been difficult, difficult. And as I look back over the last few years, there are times when I see my own leadership and I think, okay, I was trying to control in that scenario where I was trying to push something through and I think, I wish I had done some of those things in different ways. But that's the temptation that comes when the pressure is on. Instead, Peter says, when the pressure's on, leaders should lead in this way. They should care for the flock and they should watch over it willingly, freely. And they should not lord it over whatever authority they might have, but they should lead by example. Now we all know that Because we're human, leaders can sometimes twist with the authority that they have. And then rather than caring for the people that that have been entrusted to them, they they, uh, use them in some way. Or rather than serving willingly, they end up doing something for gain. Or rather than leading by example, they have different sets of expectations for the people that they're leading rather than Uh, different than themselves. We've probably all experienced that in some way, I'm guessing. I know that I've been on the receiving end of leadership like that at times, and I hate to say it, but there have been times when I've also been on the leadership end of that. So now you know I'm a jerk. There you go. (laughs) It's because of our human nature here where we keep returning to these issues of pride that end up causing these kinds of problems. Now, it's not just, this message is not just for the elders in the church. It's not just for the leaders in the church. I think Peter is writing this for any leader in any circumstance. 
If you are a follower of Jesus and you're leading in some way, this is the kind of leadership that God wants, one that is caring, one that is willingly serving, and one that is leading by example. This is, and I'm guessing here, I would say too, that just about everybody in this room in some way has some form of leadership, whether that's at your work, whether that's in your home, whether that's even amongst your friends where you are more influential. In some way, almost all of us have some level of leadership. And the leadership that we're called to do is a humble leadership that ends up winning the day. And ultimately, this is the leadership that Jesus is gonna judge all of us by. That's verse four here. And when the great shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. So Jesus is going to look at our leadership and he's going to say, if it, if it is those things, I'm going to lift you up in glory and in honor. This is the kind of leadership that Jesus always talked about. There was a time when he was uh, sitting with Pharisees uh, eating a meal and he saw how they were jostling for position. And he said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is gonna lift up the lowly at the right time. Now, it's easy to look at leaders and maybe think, ah, yes, uh, well, not doing such a great job. We can judge in our hearts a little bit at those who are above us and the decisions that are made. But before we get too far in that, Peter has more to say. So verse five here, he says, in the same way, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. So you who aren't in a leadership position also need to act with humility toward those who are in leadership and not be all kind of rebellious in what is happening. If you think about the circumstances of what's going on here, where Peter, what Peter is writing to, they're in difficult situation, they're in trouble because they are followers of Jesus. And if the leaders aren't leading with humility and caring well for the church, and if everybody else isn't being uh, humble in their interactions with the leaders, everything's gonna fall apart as pride seeps into, uh, into it all. But whether we're in authority or not, pride ends up becoming an issue. Because pride isn't actually an issue of just having leadership or authority. Pride is an issue of humanity unfortunately. Andrew Murray, he is of Scottish descent, but he was a pastor in South Africa. He says this, pride is ours and rules in us with such terrible power because it is ourself. Our very nature. Peter's trying to watch over the church at this time, treat each other with humility. Why? Well, let's look at verses, the, the rest of verse five here. And all of you dress yourself in, humanity, in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Three times in the Bible, those exact words are used. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, personally, I like some kinds of opposition. Like when we started the remodel and some people were like, you're never gonna finish that thing on time. I was like, oh yeah, I am gonna finish that thing on time. Do you wanna bet about it? There's some opposition that I like. And yes, I do have a bet writing on whether we finish the remodel on time, which is supposed to be Wednesday, so we're not gonna finish on time. Yeah. I'm going to have to swallow some pride on that one. Some opposition actually riles me up a little bit and gets me more engaged. I can handle some opposition. I can't handle opposition from God. Anything that God says he is opposed to, I want to get as far away from me and out of my life, as far away as possible. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I want as much grace as I can possibly get from God. So this lesson then to reject pride and to embrace humility is an important one, I think, for all of us. But it can be a vulnerable one. To reject pride and to live a humble life can be a vulnerable experience. But we can do it with confidence because of what we see in verses six and seven. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. We all have one authority over us. And regardless of the spheres in our lives, whether we're in leadership or not in leadership, We all have one authority over us, and that is God. He is the one authority. And we can either choose to raise ourselves up, in which case, as Jesus said, we will be lowered, or we can choose to lower ourselves, and Jesus said he will raise us up at the right time. We can trust being in a lower position when we're in Jesus' hands, because of what it says in verse seven there. He cares about us and all of our worries, all of our anxieties, all the things that cause us some sort of conflict that may even cause us to rise up in pride in some way, Jesus says, you just hand those over to me. I've got all of those and I care about you. You can trust walking humbly with me regardless of your circumstances because of how much I care about you. You just think about what's happening for the people who are originally reading this that Peter is writing to. They were being dishonored in society. They were being shut out and put down in society. But Peter's saying, you will be honored. You will be lifted up at the right time I am gonna do that for you. All these lessons that Peter is writing to these churches here, I think they're still important for all of us today. And that lesson primarily to reject pride and to embrace humility. This has been a theme that 
God has been trying to teach people through scripture from beginning to end. It is a a huge theme in scripture, repeated hundreds of times, sometimes very directly, sometimes just through stories. Why do we struggle with it so much? We struggle with it because it works. It accomplishes things for us. It allows us to get things done. It does actually elevate us in some way. But just like the sugar of a donut, it's gonna end up resulting in a crash at some time. Now throughout church history, theologians have been consistent in saying that pride is at the heart of all sin. If you want to go all the way back, hundreds of years to the church fathers, and you could look at people like John Chrysostom who said this, pride is the beginning of sin, the first impulse and movement toward evil. Perhaps indeed it is both the root and the foundation, for every sin begins from it and is maintained by it. Or if you want to look more toward modern times, you could consult C.S. Lewis, who says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. You just think about the war right now between Israel and Hamas, or Russia, Ukraine, where you think about uh, the mass shootings that have happened even in our own country here in this last week. Or you can think about the argument that you got in with your spouse this week, or with your parent, or with a friend, or just about anybody else. In all of those conflicts, most likely at the heart of it ends up being pride. Pride is the relentless destroyer of humanity. We don't always recognize it though, because pride is also really deceptive. It's hard for us to recognize it in ourselves, and it's hard to even see when it is completely apparent. It takes a lot of different shapes and a lot of different forms. Sometimes pride is boasting. It's just bragging about things. Sometimes pride is just trying to get all of the attention on ourselves that we can. Sometimes Pride is just pursuing things really selfishly at the expense of other people. Or sometimes pride is when we're looking toward power or position in some way. Sometimes pride is doing good things for others so that we'll be noticed for the good things that we do for other people. Sometimes pride is thinking really highly of ourselves. Sometimes pride is thinking really lowly of ourselves. Sometimes pride is not backing down, not apologizing, not giving in on the argument. Sometimes pride is judging others, either secretly in our hearts or even verbally in some way in how we talk with people. Pride is a persistent feeling that we're better than other people, at least some people, right? 
Ultimately, pride comes down to being a preoccupation with ourselves. And I think that a lot of it ends up coming from fear. A fear that I am not going to have enough and a fear that I'm just not enough myself. It's a preoccupation with ourselves. You think about the story um, all the way back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God had said, you can eat of anything, just not that tree right there. And the serpent comes in and he tempts Adam and Eve, saying, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil. That was the temptation. I don't have enough or I'm not enough on my own. But if I have that, then I will be elevated in some way. Pride started from the very beginning. Pride is also highly encouraged in our society today. Our society loves to put the, self, uh, put the focus on the self or loves to build people up in some way, right? We always have to accomplish. We always have to climb the ladder. We always have to be moving up in some way. So our society loves pride. And like I said, why? Because it's effective. Because it gets the job done in some way. But only for a moment. It's gonna be humility that wins the day. Ultimately, pride is not going to satisfy. One of my first public speaking uh, opportunities that I ever had was in high school. And I was going to a Catholic church and they were, uh, Catholic high school, excuse me, and the church that was associated with the school was looking for a high school student to speak at one of the evening masses. And so I got selected for that and they gave me plenty of time to prepare for what I was gonna say at the mass and I didn't prepare. I mean, I thought through some things, but then the time came and I thought, well, eh, I'm just gonna wing it. I'll be all right. And I get up there and it was a full church. And so I just did the best that I could and said kind of the loose thoughts that I had had in my mind. And it was awesome. It went really well. I got a standing ovation at the church, which I mean, it was in the Catholic church, so they're used to like stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. Maybe it was just part of the routine, I don't know, but <laughs> I had someone uh, in tears afterwards tell me, I, I hadn't ever understood that before until you explained it that way. And I sat down and the, the priest said, I think that was the Holy Spirit. It was the first time I thought, well, well, maybe I could teach. I was feeling pretty good about myself. There was somebody there in the room who saw that and then said, hey, we'd love for you to speak at this youth event that's coming up. Will you do that? Yeah, sure, no problem. I had plenty of time to prepare for the event, but I didn't. And I thought, well, I'll just wing it. And so I get up there in front of all the youth, myself being a youth, and I fell flat on my face. It was a total embarrassment. In fact, to this day, 
it is still one of the most embarrassing public speaking moments of my entire life. And I could tell that the person who had invited me to speak was really disappointed <laughs> that she had invited me to speak. I had to have some humble pie in that moment. Which is kind of interesting to use that phrase, humble pie, another sweet thing. <laughs> because honestly, all that I was experiencing and feeling, both in the success and the failure, was pride. It was good for me to experience the failure, I think, but it was pride in the moment that made it hurt so bad. It wasn't true humility. True humility is really hard to develop in any way. It's really something that God has to develop in us. If John Chrysostom said that the root of all sin is pride, then we can go to Andrew Murray again, who said that humility is the root of all virtue. In other words, anything that's truly good that is going to come from my life is going to start with humility. John Stott, he was a British theologian, he said this, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. If pride is a preoccupation with myself, humility is a preoccupation with God. It's when we know God and see God for who he is and understand who we are in light of that, that we begin to experience an unpracticed humility. That's what we see in verses six and seven here. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. When I understand who I am in light of who God is, that is where humility is going to come from. And humility is gonna win the day. Pride is gonna crash and fail. It reminds me of a story actually of Peter from the Gospel of Luke. Early on in the story that Luke is telling, Peter is out fishing and he had been fishing all night and he couldn't catch anything. And he's bringing in his nets and he's coming back to shore and Jesus is like, throw your nets out on the other side. And he goes, I've been fishing all night and I haven't caught anything. But okay, if you say so, I'll throw my net out on the other side. And so Peter throws his net out on the other side and he ends up getting such a huge haul of fish that he has to ask for help to bring it in. And he goes up to Jesus and he falls down flat on his face before Jesus and he says, get away from me for I am a sinful man. He's recognizing who Jesus is and who he is in relation. But Jesus doesn't leave him down there. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm gonna make you a fisher of people. I'm gonna actually lift you up You've humbled yourself before me. I'm gonna make you a leader in the church. I'm gonna raise you up. 
This is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to give you practical advice and tell you kind of like the steps, one, two, three, about how you foster humility in your life and you can start this week and you'll be able to achieve it at some point. I mean, if I were to do that, there are practices that are good for humility, like being thankful for what we have, being willing to ask for feedback and not being defensive when that feedback comes, practicing regular confession to God, or if you really want to get humility, practice it to other people, confession, that is. All those things can help foster humility, but they're all out of our own willpower unless we know who God is and know who we are in relationship to him. And that is what creates humility in us. John Chrysostom, again, he said, how do you eliminate pride? By knowing God. The one who truly knows God has eradicated pride from their life. It comes down to having that vision of who God is. And it comes down to everyday choices to look at Jesus first, to look to him and to say, help me to humbly follow you today, Lord. Help me to look toward others before I look to myself. Help me to not elevate my position, but to put my life in your hands and to trust what you're going to do because I know you care for me. I'm gonna leave us with this one quote from Malcolm uh, Muggridge. Uh, Muggridge was a journalist in the early 20th century and uh, was famously against Christianity, but then ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. And he says this, Human beings are only bearable when the last defenses of their egos are down. When they stand helpless and humbled before the awful circumstances of their being, it's only thus that the point of the cross becomes clear. And the point of the cross is the point of life. We're gonna recognize that here in just a little bit uh, when we take communion. But before we take communion together, which is something that binds us together as a community of faith, I wanna recognize again that the church is much bigger than New Hope. It is all around the world and the church is dealing with all kinds of issues that are different than what we experience. And so this is going to be our last opportunity throughout this series to pray for the persecuted church. So I'm going to invite Sarah to come back up and to recognize the saints around the world and particularly in North Korea that we need to be praying for. Thank you. So today uh, we focus on North Korea, the country that is number one on the world watch list and has been since 2002 with the exception of of one year, which was Afghanistan, and North Korea was number two. Um, so many people wonder, why is North Korea the most persecuted place for Christians on the planet? So in North Korea, um, North Koreans and, and the government um, believe in Juche ideology. That's um, recognizing that their dictator is their God. 
um, they worship him, and, um, and there is no religious freedom. So everyone there is uh, forced to believe in Juche. So as you can imagine, Christianity there is um, brutally opposed. Believers there receive the worst forms of torture when sent to prison and labor camps. They're either killed on the spot, their families are killed, and people who knew that they were believers and didn't report them are also um, usually killed or persecuted and put into labor camps and punished. Um, in the last year, North Korea um, has passed an anti-reactionary thought law which makes it very clear and against the law um, for having a Bible. Um, it's a serious crime and to be punished and for Christians. And I want you to know that even though we've been talking about the persecuted church and the trauma and the, the martyr that, that has happened to the church and the Christians over there, that there's hope in the suffering. And I wanna speak to that a little bit today. Um, on Christmas Day in 2005 was my first um, experience um, talking to a North Korean defector. We like to use the term missionaries as resettlers and move away from the term defector. And he was telling me about his time uh, in, in prison and that they had um, very heavy shackles and chains that were on them. And they were so heavy, it was almost impossible for them to eat. So the only way that they could do that was if all of the prisoners who were chained together moved in unison so that the momentum of the chains would be able to allow them for their hands to reach their face so that they could eat their food. And um, one of the um, elements of torture you may have heard about that's used in North Korea is also uh, electrocution. So through the chains, they were electrocuted. But that wasn't the part of the story that the defector wanted me to know. What he wanted me to know was that through that, they saw God, Jesus, the, our God, Christian God, not through Juche. Um, there was a time while they were being um, shocked on a daily basis that there was a, a, an electrical outage, something happened with the electricity, and they only experienced shocks once every three days, and they totally gave God the praise and the glory for that, and they believed that it was a blessing from God that, um, that they were only shocked once every three days, not every day. They saw it as an answer to prayer. So the faith is spreading through the labor camps, um, and I want you to hear that message. In North Korea, there's an estimated 400,000 Christians. About 30,000 of them are suffering in prison camps, the persecuted church. But despite the government's attempts to restrict Christianity in the nation, it continues to flourish. And I'm excited to tell you more about how that's happening. Uh, and so hope, right? We've talked about the persecuted church. Let's talk about hope. Second Timothy 2.9, the word of God is not bound. There's some very creative ways that missionaries, missions organizations are getting the gospel into North Korea. One, bold Christians work to bring God's word, smuggle in Bibles and discipleship resources into the country. There's a voice of the martyrs in Korea ties Bibles to balloons. Uh, they send approximately 30,000 Bibles into North Korea by balloons. Uh, these launches are completely legal. They've been conducted for 13 years, and because there's new GPS technology now, they can confirm that the majority of their Bible balloons actually land in North Korea, which is very exciting. 
<laughs> Very creative. Um, there's uh, digital media uh, with the gospel, USBs, MP3s are getting smuggled in. There's shortwave radio um, because they are close to South Korea. They are able to access um, Bible reading, Christian sermons, Christian radio drama featuring some of the North, North Korean defectors actually on the radio and gospel songs. And uh, this is Iraq from North Korea. I'm not gonna tell you how I got it, um, but, um, but for you to know that uh, there are places along the borders where um, North Korean people defect and there are uh, missionaries and Christians there who um, take rocks and put scripture on them. So with the hope that the Holy Spirit will lead um, the defectors to the rocks and they can um, learn more about God's word in a place where they can't hold a Bible, right? Um, them memorizing scripture is something that they can't be taken away from them and they, they long to encounter scripture so they can memorize it and it can never be taken away from them. Um, Romans 12, 12 inspires us to find joy and hope, patience in difficult times, and strength in prayer. Um, it's important for you to know that the gospel spreads in North Korea um, because people wanna know, who is this Jesus that you would die for him, that you would sacrifice your family for him, that people around you would die because of the name of Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Um, by Christians being martyred, it's actually spreading the gospel. Not that anyone wants that to happen, but if that's God's plan, I want you to know that that's happening. And um, the Bible and the gospel will not be silenced in North Korea. It's not, you're not gonna hear about it because a lot comes through the underground church, so it isn't publicized. But I want you to have hope. I want you to know that they have hope. And, um, and God is doing amazing things in one of the darkest places on the planet. Um, the story of the persecuted church begins with love and hope and ends with love and hope. Just like Jesus' story, it didn't end on the cross, right? He was raised from the dead. Persecuted church doesn't end when a Christian is put to death and uh, we have the hope in Christ and everlasting life. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and, and pray for North Korea. I'm gonna ask that you stand, if you can, with me. Stand with me for the persecuted church. I'm gonna ask that you stand with me right now in prayer as we lift our Jesus up um, and as we pray for the people who have sacrificed everything to move the gospel to some of the darkest places on the planet. God, we just lift up uh, the persecuted church to you and the people of North Korea. We know that despite the circumstances, you can do anything and there's no boundaries for you. God, we pray that they will encounter you in whatever way possible so that they can learn more about your son, Jesus. Um, we pray that they will um, know you uh, and uh, just be able to counter your church, encounter your church anywhere, uh, however that happens. God, we know that you're in control regardless of the dictatorship that's there, the spiritual warfare that's oppressive and the, the uh, barriers uh, that exist. So God, um, we just lift these, them up to you. We pray that the, the gospel spreads fast and widely and that more people come to faith in knowing your son Jesus more than ever before and the world can stand by and watch the number one most persecuted place on the planet, still thriving in the gospel every day. In your name we pray, amen.